Herod has a problem. He doesn't think there's room enough in Judah for there to be more than one king of the Jews. And so when these wise men come to him looking for the king, he's thinking, you're looking at him. But they know he's not the one. And he felt very threatened by their presence and even more threatened by the one they were looking for. This title, King of the Jews, is something that Herod the Great took very seriously. It was very near and dear to him because he bought it. He rose to the throne in the kingdom of Judah in 37 B.C., but he was a puppet on that throne because 25 years before he ascended to it, Judah and Israel were both conquered by the Roman Empire. His powers then were only delegated by the capital at Rome. He couldn't raise an army. All he really could do is raise the taxes as long as he gave most of them to the capital. And he coveted this power because it funded a very lavish lifestyle for him and for his family. He felt he needed to secure himself on his throne because he wasn't Jewish, not by birth and not by blood. Both of his parents were Arabs. He gained this power over Judah, not by faith, but by military power and political intrigue. And thus it was to make sure that he who was not Jewish might be able to keep a hold of the Jewish people, he went on a pilgrimage to Rome as soon as he ascended to the throne. And it wasn't to see the emperor. He wanted an audience before the Roman Senate. And he presented them with a great deal of gold. And he said, in exchange for this, I want you to name me the king of the Jews. The Roman Senate, none of them had ever been to Jerusalem, to Judah, to Galilee, to Israel. They could care less. But they cared a lot about his gold. And so they went ahead and gave Herod the title he was seeking, as if it was theirs to grant anyway. And he was very proud of it. And Herod coveted that title greatly all throughout his 37-year reign. And he was always paranoid that other people were plotting to depose him. And that is why he lived only in the best defended fortresses. And he didn't have two or three bodyguards. At any one time, Herod had 2,000 bodyguards, 2,000 men sworn to give their lives to protect his own. But he also felt that there were threats to his power even within his own family. He was married to nine different wives, but perceiving a threat from one of them, he sent her into exile along with her son, and he had members of his own family put to death. And if he's willing to do that to protect his power, what little there is of it, then certainly he's willing to kill a baby. A baby made Herod fear for his life. And that is why eventually there will be the massacre of the innocents in Bethlehem as he sends his soldiers if you can't find him, kill all the babies, just so we can be sure that there will be no threat to my throne. That's Herod's role in all of this. But what about the wise men? Look at the contrast. We're in the palace at Jerusalem. They don't curtsy, they don't bow, they don't show any respect in front of Herod the king. Instead, they dare to question him, where is the real king? And where there was no respect there for Herod and Jerusalem, as soon as they follow the light of the star that leads them to that barn in Bethlehem, what do they do? They don't just curtsy or bow. They don't kneel. The gospel tells us they prostrate themselves face down in the dirt. Now, it wasn't the nice tiler carpet of a church floor. This was a barn floor. What can we imagine? And yet they were providing Jesus with the ultimate act of humility that one can make before another. It was humanity recognizing divinity in the flesh. And that's where this really becomes an epiphany. Epiphany is a Greek word that means to show something, to reveal something that was hidden, 
to make known something that previously had not been known. And there's many different things being revealed in this encounter. God in the flesh, but also as a Messiah, one who is going to give us life for us, and not just for the Jews, but for all peoples. Because these wise men were not Jewish. They were not marked by the circumcision. They were not part of the covenant. But they believe that God sent his son to save Gentiles, pagans, Jews, slaves, free people, one and all, the old and the young, the saint and the sinner, because he created everyone. In Christ, he saves everyone. And that was prophecy being fulfilled. And this very encounter was long foretold before it came to pass. We heard it in the first reading. Isaiah chapter 60, 700 years before they followed the light of that star, Isaiah already said, these men will come from afar and they will follow that light, a light for all the nations, for the Gentiles, for all peoples. And Isaiah foretold even the gifts that they would bring, gold fit for a king, frankincense, because they recognized that Jesus is a priest. Frankincense was used in the temple at Jerusalem whenever they were offering burnt offering, which was all day, every day, thousands of animals slaughtered and burned. Well, that's not a nice smell. It's not like grilling on your barbecue. It smelled like rotting and burning flesh and the holiest of holies. And that is why they used the frankincense to try to mask that odor, but it was something only the priest could burn. Gold for a king, frankincense for a priest. Isaiah saw it all. What he did not see was the third gift that seems very out of place at this baby shower, and that was myrrh. Myrrh was something you would use to anoint a dead body for burial. These men are so wise, they realize that God has been born into the flesh, but he's born to die, as if the crib and the cross could have been cut from the same piece of wood. That's what's really being revealed here. God has become one like us to make us more like him, and he's going to do so at great cost, the cost of himself, the cost of his own flesh and blood for us, for the forgiveness of our sins and for our salvation. After this encounter, Gabriel plays his last card of the Christmas story. He assures those magi, don't go back to Jerusalem. Don't let Herod know where this child is. They go home by a different way and they're never heard from again, at least not in the Bible. But Scripture doesn't tell us everything. Tradition picks up where Scripture leaves off. And according to our historians, these men went back to those countries to the Far East as disciples of God in the flesh, disciples of Jesus Christ, telling people who didn't even know there was one God that he has sent his son to save them as well. They had an encounter with Christ, and then they went to spread not just the good news, but the great news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that's what the gospel message is meant to do for all of us, that we have an encounter with Christ here in the church, in word and in sacrament, most particularly the blessed sacrament of the altar. And then we go and tell other people this news that we ought not, should not, and cannot keep to ourselves. And so this is moving towards the end of the church's celebration of the birth of Jesus. Tomorrow is the last day. Tomorrow will be the feast of the baptism of the Lord. And right after that mass, all these things will be put away. All these lights will be shut out. But then we have to be the light. As they go dim, we have to keep burning bright. After this encounter that we have with the Christ, we too are told to go and spread the good news in word and in witness by what we say and what we do and even what we choose not to do. And so today, gifts are given 
But the greatest gift is Jesus. Jesus, who is God's flesh for the life of the world, and that's a gift that keeps on giving every time we receive the Eucharist. And it makes perfect sense that we continue to see Jesus in the Eucharist because he intended to be food for us. That's why God placed him in a manger. That was the feeding trough for the cattle. That's why he was born in Bethlehem, not just because it was also the city of David's birth, but because Bethlehem in Hebrew means the house of bread. It was always God's plan to send his son as a shepherd who would lay down his life for his flock and feed his lambs with his very self, all for us, all because he loves us and all because he hopes we'll love him back. And so today, as they bring their gold, frankincense, and myrrh, what can we give him? We can't afford those things. What we could give him is ourself. Belongs to him anyway. We could give him our faith. We could give him our heart. We could give him our fears, faults, failings, and sins. He came to take those too. No matter whatever gift we give to God, the greatest gift is the one we're about to receive. And now, lest I forget, I want the catechumens and candidates of the RCIA to please come forward. <laughs> 